For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Wendy. Well, after the sermon, we're going to have a brief time of another round of guided conversation, and so you can uh, get yourself ready for that as, as well. Um, and so we'll invite our two sisters back up. Um, but let's uh, consider God's word now, and um, let's receive uh, from really one of the most uh, massive uh, visions of Christ that we find in the entirety of the Bible. I, I, I admit, I, I felt weak preparing this. And so, uh, with all humility and joy, um, let's join in prayer together and ask that God would help us, you and me, um, in this time. Let's pray. God, thank you for being present with us. We're not alone just trying to scrap together some bare understanding of mere printed words on a page. No, 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 no. You are here. You have given us your spirit. Uh, you have inspired these words, and now you're going to help us to understand the very mind and heart of God. That's an incredible claim and transaction that's about to take place, and it cannot take place without you. So please come according to your promise. You said you will be here, so please come and help us, Father, Son, and Spirit. Bless your word and the preaching of your word. Help your servant now, me and all my weakness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago, the first couple of times that I walked through the U.S. Navy Memorial downtown, the first couple of times I walked through it, I immediately noticed, and maybe you have too, the beauty and the grandeur of the fountains and the pools and the, the flags and the bronze reliefs memorializing fallen soldiers and the statue of what's called the lone soldier. I noticed those things, but I didn't at the time notice what I was standing on. Then one day I was invited to an event at one of the office buildings adjacent to the memorial there, and there, standing on the terrace of that building, about eight stories up, I believe, I could at last see below me the entirety of the Navy memorial grounds beneath me. And there I noticed, for the first time, that the floor of the amphitheater at the center of the memorial's plaza, 100 feet in diameter, all along, was in fact a huge granite map. 
a map of the world's oceans and continents. And the idea, of course, was to remind visitors of the expanse of the Navy's reach. See, I had walked on that map a couple of times, walked right through it, but maybe I hadn't slowed down enough, or maybe I was just too much in the middle of it, but I couldn't see it before. It, it, it was almost too big. And what I needed then was a bird's eye view, to step back and to, to take a bird's eye view glance in order to see the enormity of this map beneath my feet. Listen, sometimes you can be standing in the middle of something big and not even realize it. See, in today's passage, the Apostle Paul is, is sort of taking us up in the elevator and giving us a bird's eye view. And you or I may have maybe heard about Jesus many times before, or maybe you've even walked through or camped out the, in the plaza of faith many times, but you've never even realized what you're standing on. And what Paul is pointing out here, what the apostle is showing us, is that in the Christian faith, we're not standing on an oversized floor map, but rather an oversized Savior. And we're not standing on him, we're standing before him. And Paul's intent in these few verses is just to lead us into a place where our jaws drop to the ground, and so do our knees, and we worship him for who he is. Eight times this passage uses the Greek word that's translated every or all. Again and again, every and all. And that's because the main purpose of this section of his letter to the Colossians is to lift up the sheer immensity and supremacy of Christ over all things. I originally entitled the sermon, Big, J just big, but I scrapped it thinking that might channel a little too much Tom Hanks. <laughs> so I went with something a little more sophisticated, right? The supremacy of the sun. Scholars actually believe it's possible that these words were originally part of a, a hymn that was commonly sung in the early church that maybe was already circulating around and the apostle just took it and incorporated it into his letter. Uh, that may be the case and if so, you can almost understand how these words with all their exaltedness might be rightly sung. Is this a song you need to sing in the coming week? Is this a song that needs to be part of the soundtrack of your life? The sun, this big, the sun for you. We're going to first look at this in a couple of different parts. Uh, just looking at the passage, I just want to explain it to you a little bit. The first half of it is, it, it, it brings out this theme of the supremacy of Christ over creation. That's the first half, verses 15 through 17. And then in the second half, the supremacy of Christ over redemption. That's verses 18 to 20. So I'll just run through the passage, explain what different parts of it mean, and then I want to then at the end highlight just three specific implications, applications for us, and then we'll close. So first, 
Paul takes us into a, a massive vision of the supremacy of Christ over creation. He does this by pointing us first to the uniqueness of Christ and his authority. Verse 15 tells us this amazing truth. The Son, that's Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God. See, God is spirit, as Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 4. God does not, by his nature, have a body. And that means that he's not visible to the human eye. But when God the Son was clothed in flesh, when he was born into this world as a human being, what he did was make the invisible finally visible. We could finally see God. Because Jesus is the visible image of the otherwise invisible God. Recently at our office, uh, Shania pointed at one of our bookshelves and uh, she said, is that you? And I looked up a little confused at first, not knowing what she was talking about, uh, but she was pointing and referring to a little picture of me about this big, uh, of me at nine years old dressed in a blue and gray soccer uniform. I can't exactly remember how that got to our church's office, but there it was. And as I noticed that picture, I took particular interest in it because I noticed that is the same age as my own son right now, Jeremiah, nine years old, who's also playing soccer. And so suddenly there was this profound moment I was staring into the picture trying to get to know me right? What were you like at this age? How were you uh, engaging your soccer practices and games? I was looking at this picture trying to almost get to know this little kid in my former life, curious, trying to remember what he was like. And what I was doing is what you would do too, whether you know me well or not. We used pictures as images to see and even to get to know other people. If you want to know what I was like, you look at my photo, my image. If you want to know what God is like, you look at his image too. And that's what Paul calls Jesus. He is the way in which we get to know the features and characteristics of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus as we find him in the Bible. His words, his actions, his heart. Look at Jesus. So right from the start, this passage establishes for us the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And then the next phrase describes his unique relation to the world. Verse 15 tells us he's the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn. Now that phrase almost sounds like Jesus was something like the first creature to be made or the first out of the womb. Jehovah's Witnesses actually wrongly take this in that fashion to mean that the Son of God at one point in time was actually created. Therefore, divine-ish, but not actually God, a human being, and no more. But you see, what they don't understand and what we need to understand today is that in the ancient world, firstborn is a term of status and authority. 
See, firstborn sons in ancient cultures had special rights and leadership responsibilities. They were the main heir of the family's wealth. It'd be like referring to King Charles as the firstborn over the United Kingdom. Right? One with special leadership responsibilities, special rights, and the main heir, both of the crown itself as well as the family's wealth. This is a term of status and of authority. Paul is telling us that Christ is preeminent over all of creation as its firstborn. And someone says, well, tell me why. Why this claim that Christ is preeminent over all of Creation. Well, he tells us right away, verse 16 and 17. Why? For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, Christ, the Son of God, has unique authority over everything in this universe because he made it all, and to this day, he sustains it all. And that just boggles the mind if you grapple with it. He made it all, and he sustains it all, so he's preeminent over it all. Christ made all things. Verse 16, in him all things were created. And of course, in case you're wondering what's included in that meaning of all, what do you mean all things? Well, the apostle elaborates. It's all (laughs) things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created Through him, commentator Mark Maynell points out, this includes the microscopic and cosmic, the physical and spiritual, the biological and geological, even the human and demonic. This tells us, friends, first of all, that everything in this world has intrinsic value. Everything in this material world has intrinsic value because it's been formed with intention and delight by a creator. That, that nothing is meaninglessly accidental and dispensable, but rather has intrinsic value and worth. The ground that we stand on, the food that we eat, dear friends, even the bodies that we bear. Intrinsic worth and value. Friends, some of you today may struggle with Issues related to body image. Maybe it's the message you've picked up from our culture that you're supposed to look a certain way or your body is supposed to be a certain way. Or maybe it was somebody long ago who told you a lie using words like ugly or, or weird or too small or too big or too this or too that. Listen, there's only one being who made your body, and that's God, and he never makes any mistakes. So you can, you can value and, and grow in valuing even yourself as you slowly approximate the delight that God himself has over your very features. 
more and more the likeness of God, even the way that you look at yourself in the mirror. Imagine that. Because Christ made all things. And notice verse 16 also says, all things have been created not only in him and through him, but also for him. Which means that everything in this material world was made for his praise and enjoyment. Psalm 19 and Romans 1 tell us that that we can look out at the natural world, at the skies and the the leaves now turning color, uh, at 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 the, the grand landscapes that we find across this nation, that we can look out into the natural world, and, and if we have an imagination of faith, that we would actually be able to see little glimpses of the reality of God. And, and then we would then be moved to praise him. But not only so, in doing so, we can understand that these things not only point to God, but they were made for him, meaning for his enjoyment as well, which is a wild thought if you take just a second to think about it, that there are things in the universe that were created for no other reason except for the enjoyment of God who made those things. How do we know? Because there are things in the universe that were made that you and I have never seen. And these telescopes that have been developed and designed recently and we're enjoying the, the fruit of those labors are revealing to us literally galaxies and galaxies that have never been seen by humanity ever before. And if you just pause for one second and think and ask yourself the important question, why make those things if it's something that we with our human eyes will never be able to see or enjoy? Why make them? Guess what? It's for the enjoyment of God. Or the other day, flipping through different images, my kids and I, we came across this really, really funky-looking thing uh, called uh, an ogre fish. Have you ever seen an ogre fish? It looks straight out of a nightmare or a comic book. Uh, its more official name, I think, is the, the fang-toothed fish. And the reason for that is because it has 14 enormous fangs that are so big and long that it can't even really close its mouth properly, right? And so it, it swims. It's one of the deepest living fish in the ocean. It can be found as far as 5,000 meters, over 16,000 feet deep under the sea. And it's so far down there, we've only seen a couple of them alive and only a few that just washed up on the shore dead. So only recently have we discovered these ratty-looking things. But they've been down there all this time. For what? For who? For the pleasure of God. That he could look deep down into the darkness of the ocean where we can't even get to and couldn't even see even if we were down there. And for God to be able to look at them and say, so cool (laughs) for God to look at that fish and be like how weird is that and I made it it's the praise of his glory as a creator all things not just the weird things all things made in Christ through Christ for Christ he is the one in whom, through whom, for whom all things were made. 
which tells us also that not only do all things owe their existence to God, but also we can't ultimately make sense of this world, not ultimately apart from Christ. There's a lot that we can know about our world, about our universe, about how human societies are formed, about the meaning of life. There's a lot that we can ascertain by human observation and by the scientific method, and those things are true things but we cannot get the wholeness of that truth and the depth of that truth apart from Christ because Christ is in himself the very logic of creation. As professor of theology Murray Ray recently wrote, the Christian faith is not a set of personal values or spiritual preferences. It is a claim about the way reality is constituted about all things having been created by God and ordered to God's good purposes. Do you know a Christian faith like that? Uh, Not one that only tells a, a story about personal salvation and not one that only tells a story about you or not one that only tells a story about Christian followers of of Christ, but a faith that tells a story about all things about the purpose and the origin and the existence and the future of all things. And then do you see the exalted Christ reigning with might and a smile above it all? Because he made it all, and don't forget, he also sustains it all. He's before all things, and in him all things Hold together. Which is really by itself worth pondering the rest of this week. That everything in the physical world, in our emotional world, in our relational, everything is held together by the might and the grace of Christ himself. Jesus actively sustains his creation moment by moment. Jesus is working in all things, in every situation, in every place, at every single moment, and he's working so we can rest. We're going to unpack some of the implications of that a little bit more in just a second, but let me move to the second half of this passage, which is first the supremacy of Christ over creation, and then secondly, the supremacy of Christ over redemption. The apostle continues in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, which right away leads us to being reminded or taught for the first time maybe that Jesus is the one who made not only creation, he made the church. That this this flawed thing, prone to error, weakness, brokenness, and sometimes even perpetration of evil, the church itself is a creation of God, the starting point of God's new creation. It's an astounding, amazing claim to dignify this broken body like that. But it reminds us also that then the church belongs to Jesus. If he made it, the church belongs to him and not to us. And that means everything in the life of the church, therefore, needs to be submitted to him. Right, Whatever else you think about leaders within the church at whatever level, to recognize 
that Christ is the leader of leaders, the true head of the church, and that all authority in the life of the church then descends from him. It's derivative authority, but he is the actual head, not any human being. It reminds us then that if the church belongs to him, then we are, as we serve in the church, as we take care of the ministries of the church, and most of all, the people of the church, that we are then stewards and caretakers of all that belongs to him. Why do you need to love one another in Christ's body sacrificially? Not only because your neighbor, your brother, sister is worthy of that love, so give it to them, but also because they belong to Jesus. And you are taking care of what belongs to him. You're saying, Jesus, because I love you, I love those whom you love. Jesus, because they belong to you, I will treat them as treasures of the king. Do you know that's what you're sitting next to right now? That person you were talking to for just about two, three minutes a second ago in our conversation time, they are treasures of King Jesus. And he sits there gazing and delighting over you. Them. I don't care how annoying you are, how annoying I am. Right? You put a smile. They put a smile on the king's face. It changes the way we serve, the way we look at one another. We're not just volunteering our time. We're giving our hearts to the king. Even as we work in what is, admittedly, on this side of heaven, a flawed institution in all its humanness as well. Dear friends, remember that Jesus is head of the church, and we are his body. And we're also told in verse 18 that he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, which reminds us that Jesus is the oldest child, the first in a newly resurrected family. When Jesus rose from the dead, that wasn't the terminal point of an amazing thing that God was doing. It was the beginning point of the amazing thing that God was just beginning. That he would bring about what Paul later calls in 1 Corinthians a harvest of resurrection. That Jesus was the springtime bud that pointed forward to the day when all who are in Christ would be raised up too with new bodies, free of tears and pain and decay and death, perfected one day. You tired of your tired body? You're going to get a new one one day. This is the hope of resurrection. And not only your body, that beyond that, he's going to renew all of creation. The entire physical world is going to be renewed and resurrected, made just right, rid of all decay, death, and injustice, and falling apart, and hurricanes that terrorize and kill, and all things will one day be at peace. And so God did not abandon his creation even after it became infected by sin and evil. In fact, God loved it so much, loved you and me, our physical bodies in this physical world so much that he gave up his son to redeem it all. Because Christ was not only the means by which creation was made, 
He's also the means by which the redemption of that creation would be accomplished. So that in everything, verse 18, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, in his body, and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, verse 20. Reconcile is the language of the healing of relationships, isn't it? It presupposes, it assumes that something's been broken, some, something or someone is, is fighting. Well, well, what's the apostle talking about? Who's fighting? And here's the answer. Everyone and everything against God. That there's a, there's a hostility, an estrangement, an alienation that, that has been caused by sin and evil in the world. Things are not in harmony with God as it was created to be. That there are warring kingdoms, kingdom of light and kingdom of darkness. There, there, there's, a, there's a breakage in the way that humanity relates to God, kind of like an estranged child from his or her parent, which is the story that Jesus tells in the parable of the prodigal son. It's like the broken relationship of neighbors who've become enemies. God says, I'm going to make it all right. I'm going to reconcile all things to me. I'm going to heal those brokennesses and bridge the gap of those alienations. And I'm going to do it by the death of my own son who died on the cross so that all of creation would be one day made Right. Do you see the sheer scope of what God intends to do through his son? And it's so guaranteed that the apostle talks about what was accomplished in the past tense on the cross. It's just a matter of time before God actually makes it consummate in our present reality. When Jesus comes back, we're going to see this work of reconciliation, all things restored to Christ. Christ's supreme over creation, Christ supreme over redemption. Okay, three quick applications, implications that I want to highlight before closing, and then we're done. Three things. Number one, the comfort of Christ. Number two, the call of Christ. And three, the completeness of Christ. First, the comfort of Christ amid chaos. So what do we do with these truths about Christ's preeminence over all things? Okay, that's cool. Okay, that's a nice idea. What does it matter? And what I think it gives to us is tremendous comfort. How so? If all things were created in him, through him, and for him, if Christ has made all things, then that means that none of it is accidental. None of it is meaningless. Some of you may be starving for a sense of meaning, a sense of coherence to life. Maybe it's actually what brought you to D.C. or what makes you run around so anxiously day to day in D.C. But do you know this passage telling us about where all things came from, how all things hold together, and where all things are heading gives us a durable sense of, of meaning that might finally give rest to your soul. Will you consider it? And if all things were created in him, through him, and for him, and if all things also hold together in him, 
then that means Christ is everywhere and in everything. In every obscure place, in every desolate corner of this world, Christ is personally present. There is no place where he is not. And that means you cannot successfully run away from God. Successfully. You can run for a little bit. But he is there always for you and with you. You are never alone. Beloved, Jesus is with you. In every trial and circumstance, in every place that you go, you cannot move yourself out of his reach in this universe that he made with his very own hands. And if all things hold together in him, then we find great comfort in this. All things hold together in him. The orbit and the vibration of every subatomic particle the, the predictability of the rising and the setting of the sun every single day. The reliability of the laws of nature like gravity. The well-functioning of human institutions. Uh, all these things held together in him, even our mortal bodies. If that's true, then we can rest assured that there's nothing in the created order, including our bodies, that is outside the control of Christ. Jesus is holding it together right now, whatever it is that you're facing. And you're literally saying to yourself, I cannot hold it together. We like that expression. I cannot hold it together. Beloved, no. Jesus is holding it together. Jesus is holding you together. So you can go ahead and fall apart. He'll catch you. He'll mend you. He's got you. That's hope. That's comfort. Even in the face of of debilitating illness, even in the face of an uncertain future, even in the face of the threat of hurricanes, even in the face of the chaos of this world, do you know this Christ who holds all things together in his hands? The comfort of Christ. Number two, the call of Christ. There's so much cynicism about the Christian church these days, and so much of it truly is earned. But this passage shines a light of, of, of hope and possibility right through some of that. We saw earlier how it reminds us that the body, the church is, is the very body of Christ. Christ is the head. We are his body, his physical representation here on earth. Also intimately connected with him. You are, we are collectively the body of the very same resurrected Jesus who holds all things together in his hand. Jesus is here. Jesus is amongst us. Jesus is working in our midst. His, the life of his spirit fills even this place. Flawed as we are. Limited as we are. And that means that every relationship that you build, every act of service that you give in the church, no matter how small every act of service, no matter how seemingly insignificant, has supreme dignity and worth because you're doing it for none less than the firstborn of the royal family of God, the eternal king. There's no small act of service in this body because all of it is connected to the one who's supreme over the church and over all things. 
Your little acts of love are never lost on him. He always notices all of it. Your labor is never in vain. And that also means that we can, we can serve as a, a welcome team volunteer or as a sound team personnel person with curiosity and wonder because you, you never know what God might do through your service and your work. You never know whose life literally might be changed because of the bread that you helped cut downstairs in the basement and laid out on the communion tables upstairs here. Someone who's going to encounter Jesus in a life-changing way that you got to be a part of. Or because you were a part of a sound team or, or the screen team and you're adjusting things to make sure that people can hear that their sins are forgiven. The dignity of that work, adjusting knobs, you gave people the gift of forgiveness. You were part of that work. Or the screen team where you're adjusting the LCD screens and you're enabling people to see the words of God and receive from his spirit. Or the setup team, setting up tables and doing different things. Friends, there are just so many different ways in which God is at work in his church that we get to be a part of. And don't forget, no small work is ever small in the eyes of our Savior. He invests in every single act of service in the church, dignity and worth and eternal value. But notice the passage urges us to look beyond the walls of the church, doesn't it? God is reconciling all things to himself, and so he's appointed every one of us to be ambassadors of reconciliation, which is the words he uses in 2 Corinthians, right? Where we are to go out with love and generosity and call people and call things and bring things that are alienated from the beauty of God, that are perhaps strangers and even adversaries to the truth of God. And so by your labors, you go out and you decide to to be a minister of reconciliation, right? Making the city streets a little cleaner, beautifying it, reconciling it to the beauty of God. Or where you're laboring in relationships with young people and their families, right? Where you're, you're reconciling them to this vision of the fatherhood of God, a God of families, or where with your time and energy, you're devoting yourself to legal support and advocacy for those who need help in our city, where you're, you're drawing people into the presence of a God of, of justice, or you're working on behalf of issues of affordable housing, where you're showing to people, reconciling them to the hospitality of God. You are a minister of reconciliation across our city and in our neighborhood. What do you want to bring to the table? What do you want to bring to the neighborhood? The call of Christ to serve in these different ways. And then lastly, the completeness of Christ. Of course, to finish here, God is giving us this picture of big Jesus, right? Preeminent and supreme over all things, over creation and over redemption. Do you know Jesus in all his completeness? Because our tendency is to wander away and to say, well, Jesus is cool. He forgives my sins. But what I really need in my life is something else over here. Jesus is cool. He saved me one day ago when I was a younger kid. But what I really need for meaning in life is this thing over here. Do you know the Jesus who's supreme over all? Whose salvation covers over the entire cosmos and not only your life? 
The Jesus who's supreme over all things, about whom it is said in Isaiah 59, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. His arm is so long and so big, he can reach into every part of your life and the entirety of the cosmos to bring his grace of salvation. Jesus is all we need. Complete. No additives, no preservatives. He's all that we need will we turn to him. Do you see him? Are you standing on this floor map not aware of what you see? Are you standing maybe even before Jesus not aware of the bigness of even the Savior that you trust in? Oh Lord, open our eyes and help us to see the supremacy of Christ in all things. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you would help us so and we ask that you would now come and open, open our hearts and our minds, expand ourselves, our, our, our soul's capacity to see you and then to love and to serve like these things are true. We pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen. At this time, I'd like to invite Christine and Sarah back up to help